our series on discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So in order to do so, we're going to continue looking at the first written account of Jesus' life, which is the book of Mark. So today's passage will come from Mark chapter 2, which tells the story of how Jesus healed a paralyzed man. So let's read through the text now. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So what was it that drew so many people to this house to hear Jesus speak, to the point where they were spilling out of the windows and doors? And what was it that drove these men to bring their friend to Jesus, and to break through the roof in order to get to him. To understand this, let's first talk about what happened before this point from the perspective of the disciple Peter. So we're going to look at Jesus' ministry from the perspective of Simon, who is called Peter. And the way we're going to look at this is going to be something a little bit different today. So the Gospel of Mark is pretty bare bones in its account. It's usually this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But there are details that the other Gospels include that Mark does not include. So in order to help us get a more full picture of what happened in Jesus' ministry up to this point, I'll be pulling from the Gospels of Mark, Luke, Matthew, and John all together. And we'll be using the practice of Midrash to fill out the details of what it looked like to be called a disciple of Jesus. So Midrash is a way of studying and interpreting biblical text in which we engage with the language of the text and then we fill in some of the details that the text leaves out. The words of scripture themselves are unchanging but they, and they are what are, we put our faith in. But in addition to looking at the scripture itself, it can help us to look at the text, practicing Midrash can help us look through the text in different ways so that we can build stories around the words that we're reading, and then hopefully pull out some additional meaning from what it is that we're being told. So we're going to try to understand the disciples' motivations by looking at the events that led up to the healing of the paralyzed man. So let's all put ourselves in the shoes of the disciple Simon, who was called Peter. It's early morning. You're in a boat on a lake, pulling your fishing nets out of the water. You're heading back to shore after a very long night catching barely more than sardines. It's been like this for a long time. You're tired and you're frustrated at another unproductive night. And your brother Andrew has been talking all night about his recent pilgrimage to a town several miles, miles away. 
Andrew, your brother, has spent the last few months following John the Baptist. He makes conversation with you as you row back to shore. Andrew tells you excitedly, Simon, we found the Messiah. You huff. So it turns out this John the Baptist guy is the Messiah after all? How could he be? Isn't he locked up in prison right now? What kind of Messiah would he be? Andrew responds, no. He, John isn't the Messiah. But he baptized a man by the name of Jesus and declared him to be the Christ. He called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've got to meet this man, Simon. After I heard what John said, I began to follow this Rabbi Jesus instead. His teaching was incredible, like nothing you've ever heard before. Andrew begins to tell you about what he learned. Andrew always was devoted to learning about the scriptures, even more than you. Maybe he could have been a rabbi had things been different. But you were both born to a family of fishermen, and fishing is all you've ever known. After you finally dock your boat and begin to clean the nets, you think about how you're going to tell your wife about how little fish you caught. She's already worried sick about her mother's declining health. Can you bear to face her and tell her there may not be enough money to pay for a doctor for her mother the next month? Your thoughts are interrupted by shouting. It's Andrew yelling, that's him over there by the shore. That's the rabbi I was telling you about. You see a large crowd gathered near the shore. Andrew begins to wave wildly towards the crowd. Rabbi, rabbi, over here. It's me, your servant Andrew. Please, come meet my brother Simon. You're stunned. The crowd of hundreds of people are now staring in your direction. You become vaguely embarrassed about the lack of fish in your boat. It was bad enough not to be successful at the one thing you've ever done your whole life, but now you have an audience watching you fail. Rabbi Jesus steps towards you. The crowd presses around him as he moves. He walks past you into the water and climbs into your boat. Simon, Jesus says, let's go out into the lake. He has got to be kidding. You've been in a boat all night. You're hungry. Your family is waiting for you. The last thing you want to do is go back into that water. But hundreds of eyes are watching you. So you reluctantly get back in and put into the water again. As you anchor the boat, feeling the emptiness of wasted time and disappointment from the last few months at the lake, Jesus begins to teach from your boat. Even though he's far away from the crowd, the people are mesmerized. You see a hunger in their faces as they listen to this rabbi's words. Maybe this man could be the Messiah, you think to yourself. He certainly seems to teach with authority. Jesus then turns to you. Simon, he says, let down the nets for a catch. Again, is this guy for real? It's broad daylight now, and you're close to shore. You're both in the wrong place and the wrong time for fishing. You just spent an hour cleaning your nets. But there are hundreds of eyes watching you, so you sigh and half-heartedly toss the nets into the water. All you can think is, I don't want to be doing this. All I want to be, do is to be able to feed my family and provide for them. You feel a tug on your hand. The tug tightens, and suddenly you, Andrew, and your crew are hanging on for dear life as hundreds of slippery fish bodies threaten to drag your nets and your entire boat to the bottom of the sea. You look over at Andrew and see a huge grin on his face. Messiah, he says excitedly to you. But all you feel is absolute terror as your boat begins to sink from the weight of the fish and your heart is filled with awe in the presence of this holy man. You fall down in front of Jesus and begin to cry. You feel the weight of all of your unclean thoughts and actions pushing you down. You can't even bring yourself to look at him. As it says in Luke 5.8, Go away from me, Lord. 
said Simon. I am a sinful man. After some time, you've under overcome your abject terror, but not your awe. When Jesus invited you to follow him, you accepted it and left behind your old life. In the days since then, you've listened to him declare the kingdom of God is near. You've seen him cast out demons and heal the sick and paralyzed. He healed your mother-in-law, who you were so sure was close to death's door. You've even seen him command the wind and people follow, wanting Jesus to lay hands on their sick friends and relatives. And today is no different. You've traveled around the region, attending to Jesus and listening to him preach. And now you're finally back home in Capernaum. One of the local leaders has invited Jesus to stay at his home. You and your friends are heading to the house for dinner with Jesus and several other teachers and scribes. When you get there, a crowd has already formed outside, yelling Jesus' name and begging for him to speak to them and help them. You enter and sit down to dinner. The push of the crowd at the door is making it hard to hear anyone. The noise is getting louder each minute. And finally, Jesus puts down his bread and tells the host he would like to teach the people. The host thinks this over and says, yes, you're known around here as quite the authority on scripture. So please, let's hear your words and allow our brother in to hear as well. The servants open the door and the mass of humanity presses into the house. There are people standing shoulder to shoulder in the room, spilling out of the doors and windows. You even hear footsteps overhead as people climb onto the roof to try to hear what little they can. The crowd falls to a hush as Jesus begins to speak. He looks around at the faces in the crowd, faces full of pain, of anguish, of hope, of desperation. He begins to speak words of encouragement from the Psalms. Psalm 41, one through four. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sick bed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. As Jesus is speaking, you hear a cracking sound from above. You look up, and between the beams, you see a small bulge in the clay ceiling. You hear a loud thump, and then you see a hole where the bulge used to be. The people sitting below the hole are coughing and standing up as dust and stones rain down on them. The spectacle continues as the crowd begins to shout until there's a man-sized opening in the ceiling. You then see a pallet being lowered down through the hole. People gasp and scream as they realize there's a young man lying on the mat. His eyes opened in terror as he's lowered to the floor. He can't seem to move. Everyone seems to be holding their breath, wondering if this man is simply going to roll off the mat to his death. How did this man get onto the roof in the first place? You squint up through the opening in the ceiling and see four men who are holding onto the ropes as they're lowering this mat down through onto the floor. They somehow got this man who was paralyzed up a ladder and onto the straw and clay roof. What a dangerous thing to do. If this man didn't believe Jesus could heal him, he never would have let his friends bring him up on the roof in this manner. And if this man's friends didn't believe that Jesus could truly heal him, they wouldn't have taken the risk of carrying this man up the ladder and then possibly falling off of the ladder themselves. But here they are. You hear a Pharisee sitting in the front row whisper. They say this man Jesus is able to heal people. He's a carpenter by trade, not a doctor. This paralyzed man's friends must be crazy if they believe 
the rumors about this man having magical healing powers. This is extremely disruptive. Do these people have no shame bringing into, breaking into a respected brother's house this way? Another Pharisee responds, maybe the reports about him are true. We've heard plenty of people to say that this man is able to heal the sick. Let's just watch and see what happens. The mat finally reaches the ground at Jesus' feet. The, man above, the men above begin to yell, Rabbi, Rabbi, our friend is paralyzed. He hasn't been able to make it to Jerusalem to give his temple offerings. He hasn't even been able to work to support his mother and father. But Rabbi, we've heard about the signs and we believe you can make him well. Please, Rabbi, heal him. Jesus is looking with compassion at the terrified man on the floor. You wonder if this young man is feeling the same way you did when you first encountered Jesus. When you first encountered Jesus, you thought, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Does this man also sense the absolute holiness of Jesus? Is he also filled with shame at the sin that he carries? As if reading the man's thoughts, or maybe yours, Jesus says to the man on the floor, Matthew 9-2, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, the Pharisees begin to stir. They say nothing, their faces blank as ever. This is the first time throughout your time with Jesus that you've heard him say, forgive, or your sins are forgiven. What could this mean? You remember the words of John the Baptist, who, when he saw Jesus, said, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. You've seen Jesus command an unclean spirit out of a man at the synagogue. The unclean spirit, as he was leaving the man's body, referred to Jesus as the Holy One of God. The prophet Isaiah referred to God as the Holy One of Israel almost 30 times. Isaiah used this term to describe the God who speaks truth and redeems Israel. If Jesus is the Holy One of God, then by extension, he is the one who speaks truth and redeems on behalf of God. You've seen him speak truth time and time again. There's no pretext to his words. Therefore, it would make sense to call him the Holy One of God, and in turn, to accept that he has the power to forgive as well. The Pharisees, on the other hand, don't seem to be buying it. You can't really blame them. They haven't spent time with Jesus the way that you have. You can understand their skepticism, and you can even identify with their apparent shock at Jesus saying that this man's sins are forgiven. They don't know Jesus like you do. The young man is still lying there on the mat, unhealed but comforted. You can't imagine the humiliation he and his friends will feel if he leaves his place not being healed of his paralysis. Or maybe it was enough for this man to come and to be forgiven of his sins. Maybe that's all he really came for. You have no way of knowing. But is Jesus going to heal him? You've seen him do it a thousand times before. But he's not doing anything. Instead, he's turning to the Pharisees and the scribes. And as if, once again, Jesus is reading their thoughts, he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Mark 2, 8 through 9. Jesus is now declaring outright that he has the authority to forgive sins. The Pharisees look scandalized. None of the teachers or prophets have ever claimed the ability to forgive sins. The Psalms tell us that God alone can forgive sins. As it says in Psalms 130, 7-8, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. 
He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. So you think about Jesus' question, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. It would be far easier to say that this man's sins are forgiven, because forgiveness is unseen. It's something that's between the man and God. It would be far more difficult to tell the man to take his mat and walk. If the man were not healed, this would be cruel and humiliating to the man and his friends. It would be disheartening to the crowd. And most of all, it would prove that Jesus is not who he says he is. And on the other hand, if Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins, and therefore has this authority from God, which would be easier for God to say, that a man who's paralyzed can walk again, or that his sins are forgiven? Forgiveness and sin is so far removed from God. It's much farther removed from God than paralysis is. It is so easy for God to heal someone of their paralysis compared to God forgiving sin just because of the weight of sin. Sin is the opposite of who God is. And so by forgiving sin, God is accepting what is contrary to him. And that's really, really hard to understand. But to prove his point that he is who he says he is, Jesus turns to the paralyzed man and says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, the paralyzed man stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Luke 5, 24 through 26. This young man praises God. Not Jesus, the man in front of him who had healed him, but God. It wasn't just this man's paralysis that had been healed. His heart had been restored to right relationship with God as well. And in your heart, you're once again reminded of a promise told by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So there are many different perspectives that we could have taken in looking at this story. There are Peter and the apostles who have traveled with Jesus and seen him heal. And because they had seen him heal and perform miracles, they fully expected to see signs and miracles as they were following Jesus. What they had not expected was to hear Jesus say that he could forgive sins. There are the Pharisees who may have heard about Jesus's healing abilities, but who a lot of them likely had not seen Jesus perform these miracles firsthand. Because they had not seen, they didn't know what to expect. And rather than watching to see whether Jesus would heal after Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, they instead decided to blaspheme and accuse Jesus of blasphemy and judge him for the words that he said, rather than watching to see what would happen. There's the owner of the house who was likely amazed and in awe at this whole situation taking place, but was probably also thinking, good thing this guy Jesus is a woodworker. Like, is he going to help me fix my roof after this is all over? But the focus on the passage is on the faith of the paralytic man and his friends, and Jesus' response to that faith. Jesus' reputation as a healer had spread far and wide, and there's no doubt that this man and his friends had heard about Jesus' ability to heal. They were so desperate to help their friends they, they were willing to, com um, that they, to help their friend who was paralyzed, that they were willing to commit minor property damage in order to get to Jesus. The paralytic man's friends had heard, but they had not seen, and yet they believed anyway. This is the definition of faith. So 
Last week, Jay talked about the faith of the disciples who were ordinary men that Jesus had called to ministry. Based on how they were called, the disciples likely expected to see signs and miracles. But what they didn't expect was that Jesus was calling them into a relationship with God where they could repent and expect to receive forgiveness and be made whole again. This healing of the paralyzed man showed them that Jesus had the authority to forgive their sins. But based on how the disciples continued to behave and get it wrong after this incident, we can assume that the message didn't immediately sink in. So as we work through the book of Mark, we're going to see time and time again how the chosen disciples often fail to believe in Jesus, but it's the outcasts and the outsiders who tend to get it right and have the greatest faith. In this passage that we studied today, we saw how God sees both our actions and our thoughts. Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking, even though they said nothing. And I would argue that based on the fact that Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking, he knew what the, the paralyzed man was thinking as well. And this is why Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew that deep down, this was truly what the paralyzed man had come to him for, even if the man himself didn't know it until he was face to face with the living God, Son of God. And the reason why I believe this is this. In every account of Jesus performing miracles, he does what the person requests of him and what they desire in their heart. When Jesus made the heavy haul of fish appear for Simon, he, didn't, he was addressing the desire of Simon's heart in that moment. He wasn't asking Simon to come follow him and to drop his whole livelihood. He first provided for Simon by making it financially, by making it financially available, uh, feasible for Simon to be able to follow him. When Jesus was at the wedding of Cana, he turned water into wine, but he didn't turn the water into bread or seltzer or some healthy non-alcoholic beverage. He turned the water into wine because that was what the wedding host desired. So it would be erroneous for us to think that Jesus first told the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven for some ulterior motive, as if he was using this man as example to everyone else to learn something. Jesus was addressing this man's desires, first and foremost. So being a disciple of Jesus means that we can trust Jesus to do what he says he's going to do, because we know that this is his character. It also means that we trust Jesus enough to be honest with him about what it is that we desire. Jesus didn't have to give Simon all that fish, and he didn't have to turn the water into wine. But Jesus knows all of our thoughts, and he knows all of our desires, even the ones that contradict the other ones. So for an example of desires that we may have that contradict each other, for me, I have always loved traveling. Um, I like traveling to faraway places, to near places. I just like traveling and getting to know the world around me. Um, another desire I have, though, is to have lots of pets, as you guys may know. <laughs> we have two cats and counting, <laughs> um, a dog, hamster, fish, all sorts of fuzzy things, because I love fuzzy things, and I like taking care of things when I'm home. I also have lots of plants in my garden, and the last time we went traveling, a lot of them died because I didn't set up the irrigation properly. And I just feel conflicted about this desire because I want to travel, but I also love having all these things at home to take care of. Um, on a more spiritual level, though, I do recall when I was just coming out of college, I had a desire to see the church grow around the world. Like it was something that God had placed on my heart and specifically to see the church grow in my parents' home country of Thailand. So I was conflicted because I started talking to servant partners about potentially joining in partnership with them to go overseas and work on a church plant. 
But I also was graduating with a degree, and I wanted to honor that um, investment that my parents had made in my future. So I also wanted the career, and more than anything, I wanted to be married and to start a family. And these are two very conflicting desires. Not necessarily for everyone, but looking back, and it's always when we look back, right? Like looking back, for me, where I was and where my heart was, these were two very conflicting desires because I wanted one thing that I felt was holy and I wanted another thing that I didn't feel was as holy and I wanted somehow for the two of those things to happen together. And they didn't. But it's okay because I ended up not going to Thailand, getting married almost right out of college. And, but regardless, through that desire that God had placed on my heart and through those connections that he brought my way, I was able to help support some of the church plants that were happening in Thailand. I was able to support some very dear friends that were working on exactly the work that I was hoping for and be able to provide for them and hear updates for them and to hear their stories of how God was working in the place where my heart was. And so really what God was doing in that moment when I look back was that he was addressing both desires of my heart, not in the way that I expected at all, but certainly in a way that worked out better than I could have ever hoped. And so it may be possible that whatever struggles that you're facing, or that you're experiencing now, God is working in your situation to give you another desire that you may or may not even be aware that you have in order to pave the way for him to address the things that you are specifically asking him for in this moment. And the reason why it's important to recognize this is that by keeping this in mind, we can have faith like the paralyzed man and his friends who are waiting there waiting for Jesus to heal their friend, but instead accepted Jesus' words, your sins are forgiven, first. We can't know why God is letting life unfold the way that it does, but we can engage with God in prayer and search and be honest with ourselves about our own thoughts and desires so that we can be encouraged, at least in the present moment, by seeing the ways that God is continuing to work for us and for the people around us. Growing up in... A lot of like the context that the spiritual context I grew up in, I always felt like whatever I desire was always going to be in tension with what God wants. So I felt like everything that I wanted was the opposite of what God wanted. Um, but what we see in what Nan shared is like God is in those desires. Like He plants those desires in us, and He lets us wrestle with Him in those places. Lately, for me, one of those spaces have been, um, I've been feeling a lot of anxiety, especially the last couple of weeks. And um, so I've been praying with God about this. And it's all, for, you know, it's all around, like, what I want, you know, these, of where, like, this is what I want, and what I'm, what I'm wanting is not meeting up. And that's where the anxiety comes in. And I, I found myself kind of trying to absolve this or get through this in three main ways. One is just to be completely overwhelmed by it, you know, just like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling all, you know, feeling it, and just let it come through, and just let it pass by like, like I'm being, being beat up by a wave, and um, the second is just to kind of put a spiritual band-aid on it, you know what I mean, like, y'all have done this, y'all, you don't know you did, do it, but you've done this before, like, you, you get a quote from like this IG post, you know, and you're like, yes, that's what I needed to get by, and you're good to like, the next wave of anxiety, <laughs> or like a, or, or you know, or like a quick burst, you know, and then you're good, and then you're, you're good until the next wave. 
And the last, last thing that I've been trying to do more intentionally was just really pray through it. And just really acknowledge God, God, I, I have these feelings, I have these desires, and they're conflicting with like how, I, I just, this is very overwhelming, God. <laughs> and in those spaces, I felt the Holy Spirit kind of bring up to surface some of the sort, there are many com- things, are, you know, I don't think anxiety is always just kind of one thing. I feel like it's layered, at least for me. And one of the sources of those anxiety um, is kind of the recent wave of like COVID cases and the Delta variant and whatnot. And we're seeing all around us, you know, and as the news of like this wave continues to swell over the last couple of weeks, like my thoughts have been like on the immediate impact of, of it, you know, like this, this impacts my family. This impacts my wife. She's an ICU nurse. Um, I think about what, this, what the COVID wave meant end of last year, beginning of this year, and the toll that it took on my wife and her coworkers and the compassion fatigue that they're feeling. Um, they're questioning, um, they're calling into this ministry, like literally at St. Joseph and St. Jude, um, they call their job a ministry. It says a ministry of St. Joseph and St. Jude. They see this as a spiritual calling, right? And the difficulty and severity of it has, is, is, is having them ask God, why? I'm thinking, like, school starts tomorrow in Fullerton, right? I'm thinking about what this means for our kids, for our students. I'm thinking about what this means for our teachers, our beloved teachers. Man, y'all went through, like, hell. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about what, that, what, it, what, it, what it might be like for y'all to, like, prepare your classrooms again when there's news of this increasing wave in the background. Um, and in a bigger picture, I'm thinking about how this narrative around COVID has caused so much division. Like, to flat out hatred to our fellow brothers and sisters, especially in the faith. I have desires of reconciliation, but there's a tension there. I think about John 10.10, 10, right? It says where uh, Jesus came so that we would have life and life abundantly, but the, en- the enemy came um, to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think about like all the ways the enemy has stolen things from us, has killed things from us, had destroyed so many things, both physically and spiritually, right? Which is the, actually the miracle that we're talking about today. It's like there's both a physical healing and a spiritual healing that took place. And the enemy attacked both sides. And we, this last year, we felt ravaged by it. I have anxiety because I feel like I want to experience this abundant life that Jesus came for. And I feel like I feel more of the more the former. So many things stolen, destroyed. So many things, people dying. Um, Jesus came so that we would live a life, an abundant life. And the, 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 the he, he lived and he died and he lived again <laughs> as a reminder of the abundant life. That's in Jesus. Um, the communion is a reminder of that. Um, 
So with that, um, I've been thinking about what it means for a spiritual community um, to be friends. You know, a few weeks back, we, we, we read the passage from John 15 where Jesus talks about friendship. You know, greater love has no one than this, than to lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And so I think about what that means in our church context and that, that Jesus calls us to be friends as we are friends with Jesus. Both things coexist together. Just because you're a friend with Jesus, that doesn't mean you're not a friend with anybody else. Both relationships coexist at the same time. We are called to be good friends with one another. We are called to care one another. One another. Um, so with that, like some housekeeping stuff, you know, we're going to go through some temporary setbacks a little bit. Like we're going uh, <laughs> to do uh, temperature checks again. Um, you know, we're going to have, we, uh, we ordered more... Um, hand sanitizers, and they'll be all over the place. We're going to just plaster this place with hand sanitizers. Solidarity already hooked us up with some. Like, there's like one by the doors, automatic ones. Um, they're nice. Um, just stick your hand in there, you know, future uh, stuff. <laughs> and we're going to continue to ask people to wear masks inside, um, except for the people in front, you know. And, um, and these are just temporary setbacks, minor setbacks, uh, minor inconveniences. Maybe just so that maybe we could have a shot at an abundant life <laughs> that Jesus called for. That, that we would experience abundance in our, in our souls through relationships and friendships. We're going to forfeit the convenience of our whatever. Or we're going to forfeit our convenience so that we could gain the soul in this season. Again, I want to remind us that... Um, the life that Jesus lived, his dying and his living, um, was to demonstrate his friendship to us. And in our friendship with Jesus, we are called to be friends with one another. 